0: the song some Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're stealing the fact.
1: When you give can-
0: All right. Uh, That, of course, is "You Too." That, of course, is uh, the most prominently associated song with Charles Manson, although the music of Charles Manson is in itself uh, a pretty complicated uh, subject and and a a rich one as well, I suppose. So why are we doing a show about Charles Manson? For a bunch of reasons. Obviously, the 50th anniversary uh, of his main and most famous crime uh, or crimes is this month, and partly because of that, There's quite a bit of culture that's come out over the past year or so. Uh, Movies like Charlie Says, The Haunting of Sharon Tate, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's the Tarantino film, uh, and uh, Mindhunter Season 2, in which, uh, well, you'll hear a little bit about that uh, and Manson's appearance in that series in just a second. And I think there's a way in which Manson sits in a very odd place uh, in the American collective mind. There's the reality, and then there's this sort of inert vaccine version where he's rendered into something a little less dangerous because he entered our world, as you will hear out of a desire to be part of pop culture. And then he killed people who were part of pop culture and wanted to kill still other people who were part of pop culture. And then he got digested by pop culture. So he always seems to have one foot in the real world where he did real, evil, horrible things. And the other foot in this world of legends and movies, and as you will hear, even jokes, Uh, there's a way in which he's been rendered that inert. He exists both ways. And I think it's also not always clear where that demarcation is. Those two worlds, those two versions of Manson kind of bleed into each other and kind of fog the mirror together. So we've got two terrific guests here to walk you through all this. Uh, Asia Romano is an internet culture reporter for Vox. She probably has written more about Charles Manson than she ever thought she would. Starting out in life, she wrote Vox's Manson Murders Family Explainer, uh, published earlier this month, Vox's Obituary for Charles Manson, and other things Besides, as she joins us via Skype, Peter Biskin has been on the show before because of his book, The Sky Is Falling How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for extremism. He uh, wrote a piece uh, called How the Manson Family Murders Turned into 50 Years of Pop Culture Fodder for Esquire, where he is a staff writer. Um, So I'm going to begin with some of the ways in which this story uh, has been warped and and misconceptions have been kind of uh, baked into it partly probably by that the way in which it's so indistinguishable from the pop culture version of itself. And, and Asia, maybe we could begin with just talking a little bit about What the true story is here of these crimes, I think in in the zeitgeist, it kind of comes out as this very random thing where these drugged out hippies show up, uh, uh, at least in in the first uh, of the two linked murders, the so-called Tate LaBianca murders, show up at this uh, fancy celebrity house kind of come out of nowhere, do this thing for no real reason. Um, but it it wasn't random at all, and there was a very specific strategy behind it related to an earlier crime. Maybe you can explain that for us, Asia.
1: Absolutely. I think one thing that people think about Charles Manson is that he just sort of was this um, – magnetic figure who came out of nowhere, but he and his followers escalated their crimes for years and months before the the Tate LaBianca murders. Um, and essentially when Manson moved his family, his quote unquote family to Los Angeles, uh, they basically began a crime spree that involved petty theft. Um, they were, some of them were involved in, um, drug, convictions and so forth uh and Manson wasn't really happy about all of this in the middle of it he uh, asked one of his followers um Bobby Beausoleil to kill one of Beausoleil's best friends Gary Inman because at the time the family believed for some reason that Gary Inman had come into a a large inheritance and uh they thought that basically they could extort this money out of of Hinman but what happened was that uh Beausoleil ended up murdering him um and because of this crime, uh, which they tried to stage as, as, as related to the Black Panthers, uh, they, this was where they first wrote the, the political piggy, uh, the famous message that they wrote on the wall. This is where they, that first happened. Um, because of this crime being under investigation, Manson decided that they needed to distract the LAPD, um, from Beausoleil because he thought that Beausoleil might give them all up to the police, um. So he concocted this plan where they would go to uh, the Tate residence um, and he had actually planned for them to go to another, a number of other houses in Hollywood that same night. And they would just sort of commit general mayhem, and they would blame all of this on the Black Panthers, and this would be part of his attempt to, to quote unquote, start the race war that he called Helter Skelter, um, if that makes sense. So all of this was sort of just a giant, uh, supposed to be a giant misdirect from the earlier murder of Gary Hinman. Um, and of course, it became something much larger.
0: Right. And I think part of it was because they'd been watching cop shows where on television where this worked. Right, where you you committed a, a crime was committed while somebody was under arrest for a similar crime, uh, and it made it pretty clear that he he couldn't possibly have committed the first crime because somebody was out there still doing it. So uh, the other part about this that I think uh, gets absorbed uh, incorrectly was—and and it's starting from right at the time. So Manson looked and gave out pretty much the the, the attitude of part—it's uh, just a really warped and misdirected part uh, of this kind of hippie flower power— peace and love movement um, uh, that had as its politics uh, a a lot of very liberal kinds of thinking. He wasn't that guy at all, right? I mean, if we're going to call a white supremacist somebody who believes in the innate superiority of the white race uh, and and acts on those beliefs, he was a white supremacist, Asia, the kind of guy who would be marching at Charlottesville if you were active at that time.
1: Absolutely. He was very much a racist. He actually was involved with the Aryan Brotherhood later on um, when he was in jail. And he had many, uh, many of his followers were also involved in, in the Aryan Brotherhood. One of them married a member. Um, and this was was a, a big theme of the, the cult. Um, He also was just a lot more mainstream than I think people give him credit for, uh, which is not to say that white supremacy is mainstream, but Mm -hmm. people think of him as being very, very uh, like a a leftist fringe anarchist almost. But he wasn't that way at all. He read um, one of the biggest influences on him was Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, He would use these sort of very capitalist, uh, very centrist social engineering techniques um, to get his way and to manipulate people. Um, It was all very calculated, and the way that he used and manipulated race was also very calculated and very much part of that.
0: All right, so I think that kind of leads us into – Um, As I say, constantly, we're going to kind of explore the way this story has its foot in two different worlds. Uh, So uh, here uh, in this year, in the second season of Mindhunter, we see an appearance by Charles Manson. He's played by uh, Damon Harriman, who also plays Charles Manson in uh, the Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is weird, I think. But uh, you'll hear uh, this FBI profiler, Holden Ford, uh, interviewing Charles Manson in prison.
2: You believe this helter-skelter?
3: Death to pigs? Political piggy? Gotta admit, it
2: sounds like a vision. There's no vision. I might have had an opinion about blacks and
0: whites and the, the hassles they were having, but I don't recall saying anything about starting a race war.
3: So how did that become the story?
0: It was Sadie who started hearing messages in the White Album.
2: She gave the media the material for any perversion they cared print. The DA grabbed Sadie's version, ran all the way through the courtroom with it. Charles Manson, the most dangerous man alive. Hippie cult leader who programmed people to kill. In that book, he's got me so powerful to look for me stopped his watch. I lay there in my cell wondering, wow, am I really all they say? I was halfway believing that
0: myself. But I've been staring at every clock I see. And you know what? As hard as I stare, the clock never stops. So, Peter, uh, there's a way in which uh, the Manson is used here. You, as you wrote in your article, um, Mindhunter is, for the most part, about the very, the more, if there's such a thing, typical serial killer. The person who grabs somebody and strangles them or stabs them and then does that to another person and another person and another person. And suddenly... In the second season of this film, Manson kind of breaks that flow a little bit because he doesn't get his hands dirty in that way. He's not a lone operator. he's kind of everything that these other serial killers aren't right
3: yeah well i you know I interviewed Joe Penhall, who was the creator of the show, and um, he made the point that uh Manson. Uh, what was unusual about Manson compared to the other serial killers was who often just used force. Like he was talking about a um, one guy who just dragged women into into his van and killed them. I'm mean, just forced them in using using um, you know his his greater um, you know physical physicality. Uh, Manson used his mind to control um, a lot of you know his followers, and that was. Uh, for him, an important difference between, um, Manson and the other serial killers. He actually also said that, you know, I asked him, you know, what, he talked to Man, he interviewed Manson on the phone from prison, and basically he just said he ranted and raved and compared he what, and complained he wasn't getting his Christmas dinners, he complained he wasn't able to use the telephone as much as he wanted to, and stuff like that, uh, and he, he said that Manson, for him, was a relief from some of the other serial killers, because, um, Because he was smarter, you know, and he did, you know, traffic in various uh, uh, political fantasies and religious fantasies, whereas the others were just uh, basically killers.
0: One of the other things that I think comes out in, in Hunter that's kind of interesting is, and we're going to talk a lot here in the rest of this segment, about how Manson's first impulse upon arriving in California was that he wanted to be a star, like some of the other stars that he was seeing emerge, stars who were very different from celebrities and, and super famous people who had preceded uh, this movement. Uh, and that in Hunter, he kind of has finally gotten his wish, and we see Holden Ford this kind of idealistic, fresh-faced uh, FBI agent who has been talking to a lot of serial killers already, he's visibly starstruck. There's a way in which even some of the other characters either mock or criticize him for the fact that he is excited in a kind of an inappropriate way, Peter, for by seeing Manson.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, you know, he's definitely treated like you know, I mean, what you say is true. He's definitely treated like a star in... in, in not only um, by um, Holden, but by some of the other serial killers, and certainly the guards. Uh, And, you know, I thought the portrait, the physical portrait of Manson was pretty on target. I mean, he, you know, he was known for ranting and raving and speaking. You know, he's very verbal. And so he jumps on top of, he jumps on his chair, and he's also, he acted out things he was he was talking about or raving about and that's all there in the in that scene in um Mindhunter
0: So Asia, we probably don't have time to fully sketch out how Charles Manson became Charles Manson, how he became. But I mean, this is somebody from a fairly deprived childhood uh, with not a particularly stable family or parent structure, a guy who starts committing lesser, although serious crimes, uh, winds up in prison. uh, And when he gets out of prison, he does seem very drawn to this kind of gold rush that's happening in California. You and I have both listened to the podcast You Must Remember Manson. I think they set this up very well that suddenly the old star system is overthrown the Bob Hopes and the Doris Days are being replaced uh, by uh, the Peter uh, Fondas and the Mamas and the Papas, people who who aren't, don't, they don't look the way the old people do, the older stars do. And and Manson sees him this as, this is what he really wants, right? This is the opportunity he's seeking.
1: Absolutely. He definitely went to Hollywood with the goal of exploring um, fame. he had made, he actually made connections in prison um, and he'd been taking guitar lessons. And I think that he thought he could just sort of uh, use his initial connections to network his way up uh, through the system. And The unique thing about this is that he actually almost did this. I mean, he networked pretty well, um, but the thing that we have to remember is that he, the way that he networked frequently involved um, using the women who were in his cult uh, to lure um, people with more power and more connections into his orbit, uh, often with sex. Um, So with Manson, everything that he did uh, was A, calculated and B, calculated to hopefully gain fame and if not fame then a certain level of notoriety uh, but see it was also often done completely on uh through the emotional and sometimes physical labor of the women who who were in his cult right um, but yeah he, he definitely was very was pretty successful at networking he hung out with the the son of doris day terry melcher um And also, of course, Beach Boys, uh, the famous Beach Boys uh, member, Brian Wilson, or excuse me, Dennis Wilson.
0: Right. So all of the... Uh, Wilson well actually Carl who I met a few times is a halfway normal person but um, the Wilson (laughs) brothers uh, you know had all kinds of problems Uh, they and and so Dennis Wilson uh, is easily I guess corruptible by Manson he even moves the family into his own house Dennis Wilson the drummer for the Beach Boys moves the family into his own house Uh, and Charles uh, Manson at this point does fancy himself as a a songwriter Uh, and um uh, Wilson conv- actually convinces the other Beach Boys to do a Manson song, uh, ultimately changing the title. Uh, I think it was originally supposed to be called Cease to Exist. Uh, but let's just hear a, a little bit uh, of Never Learn Not to Love.
3: Cease to exist.
0: So, so Peter Biskin, there's a way in which, this becomes kind of a primal crime or a symbolic of a primal crime that Manson thinks Hollywood has committed against him. He doesn't get a songwriting credit uh, on this song. Uh, It's altered, it's changed, it's retitled. And more than that, Terry Melcher, the son uh, of Doris Day turns out not to have any interest in producing a record by him or furthering his career at all in, 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 a way that kind of reminds me of Ezra Edelman's uh, eight-hour documentary about O.G. Simpson. We just see America's version of fame uh, and and approbation as this thing that somebody wants so badly that they can't stand it when they don't get it.
3: Well, it's snatched away from him. I mean, the fact that he didn't get credit on the liner notes for writing the song must have killed him. I mean, it was humiliating. And all along, he was furious that... um, that that Dennis Wilson made changes in the song without consulting him and, you know, and did whatever he wanted with it. And, you know, I think that was a, you know, being, being, given that he aspired, you know, to that kind of um, prominence in the music business uh, and stardom and celebrity and he was hanging out with all these people uh, and then to have it, uh, the rug pulled out from under him, I think was, you know, was a major, Certainly, it was a major disappointment, and I think it was a, mo- a motive for uh, what subsequently happened. I mean, a, a motive among other motives. I mean, I think it was one of these crimes that was uh, overdetermined, as Freud would say. You know, there are lots of reasons for it.
0: Right. I think, you know, when you look at the whole fact pattern of Manson's life, which Asia has done a tremendous job of uh, of laying out, You and, and the earlier crimes, you see a guy who's probably going to do some very horrible things no matter what. But he, at least, uh, I think, has this new emotional fuel uh, driving him, that this world that he's come out to claim, this gold rush at the West Coast uh, for, for fame, uh, is not, in fact, going to welcome him the way that he thought they were. So, He's probably going to go at them in a different way. All right, so let's take a little break. We'll go come back with these two terrific guests. Um, Terry Melcher did produce the Mamas and the Papas.
2: One, please. 75
1: cents. What if I'm in the movie? What do you mean? I mean, I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate. You're in this? Mm Mm-hmm. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. That's me. (laughs) But that's the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Well, that's me. The girl from Valley of the Dolls.
0: Really? Really.
2: Hey, Reuben! Come out here! This is the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Patty Duke? No, the other one.
3: The girl from Peyton Place? No,
2: the other one. The one who ends up doing dirty movies. Oh. She's in this movie. Oh.
1: Tate.
3: Well. Welcome to the Bruin, Miss Tate. Thank you for coming to our theater. Would you like to come in and see the show? Could I? By all means. Thank you.
0: So that, of course, is from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's Margot Robbie uh, uh, performing the role of Sharon Tate. The movie she's going to see is The Wrecking Crew, uh, a Dean Martin movie, um, one of a number of movies that Sharon Tate was in, which were not necessarily a great movies. Um, but uh, here, Tarantino at least tries to give you some sense of this person. Because um, let me just reintroduce our, our panelists, too, as we're talking here about uh, Charles Manson. Um, Asia Romano is an internet culture reporter for Vox. She wrote Vox is Manson Family Murders Explainer, published earlier this month, and a lot of other stuff about Charles Manson over the years. Peter Biskin is the author, most recently, of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism. He wrote a piece called How the Manson Family Murders Turned into 50 Years of Pop Culture, a fodder for Esquire. So Asia... You know, in playing this clip, I I was reminded that one of the things that typically happens here in in America, and it it happened with this, is that although there's now kind of a conscious effort, I think, to refer to these as the Tate-LaBianca murders, the truth is these are the Manson murders, I think, in the minds of a lot of people. In many of these highly profiled uh, cases, the victims get lost. The act itself gets lost, and especially in the case of Charles Manson, because of whatever charisma or set of projections from us go on to him there's there's almost a way in which if not for writers like you we forget exactly what was done who it was done to and how completely horrible it was
1: exactly and I think one reason that we refer to the murders specifically now as the Tate LaBianca murders um, is not just to make sure that we don't overshadow the victims, but also because uh, they weren't the only acts of violence that the Manson family committed. You know, like I mentioned the Gary Hyman murder before, but uh, Manson himself shot a drug dealer before that. And um, of course, after that, his followers go, would go on to commit a whole lot of mayhem in his name, um, including the attempted assassination of a president. So um, there were were more murders to come, and I think that that's one reason that we just try to to be very specific about which Manson family murders we're talking about. Um, but of course, there's also the fact that Sharon Tate herself, um, her murder, in uh, specific to this particular moment in Hollywood, it was such a huge. Um, just devastating thing for so many people in Hollywood. Um, another thing that we don't really talk about is that uh, Abigail Folger, um, who was the the 26-year-old heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune, was also killed in uh, that night at the Tate residence. And I think if Sharon Tate hadn't been there, um, the, the murder of this young up-and-coming woman who uh, was an heiress would have been headline news. Um, but because Sharon Tate's murder was so... Just unconscionable, I think, to so many people. It really, really just blotted out a lot of other things that we know about that night. So
0: I, I want to ask both of you about this, but Peter Biskin, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, there's sort of a theory of life and free will and fixed destinies that kind of comes out of this whole story, uh, and, and Manson comes to symbolize the guy who, as you were saying in the first segment, segment, could get people to do horrible things. There's that whole "just be glad your kid never met Charles Manson," which is a verbatim quote from John Waters. This is one of the. We'll get to that later, but this is one of the few stories that John Waters appears to take seriously. But that's the way he frames it. Just be glad your kid never met Charles Manson, because whoever your kid was, Charles Manson had a pretty good chance uh, of getting that person to do something horrible. And and then, you know, I, in a way, though, it, this remaining mystery, this kind of moral blankness uh, of the family, this the fungibility uh, and malleability of their morals and behaviors, it, it really is the mystery that won't go away. I don't know, Peter, maybe you could comment on that.
3: Well, one of the things that's interesting is, that, you know, it um, this a lot of this is often explained by uh, by uh, saying that the you know that his followers, especially the women or the girls or the women, whichever, um, you know, were coming from broken homes or uh, parents who didn't give them you know ignore them or didn't give them enough affection and so forth and so on. But a lot of them, the major ones, in fact, were very well. You know, we're we're at, you know at uh, high achievers in their hometowns. I mean, Tex Watson, who was involved in both the uh, Tate murders and the uh, La Bianca murders, was uh... got nearly straight A's in high school. Winkle sang in the church choir. Van Houten had been homecoming queen in her high school. So uh, you know, especially a lot of the uh, more prominent ones, and certainly in the uh, prominent in the actual crimes we're not um, dysfunctional people uh apparently at least not superficially so the question it becomes as you said uh why did that you know how did they so easily fall into uh, you know under manson's sway and that's still a mystery you know i i you know and it's 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 related to the question of why 50 years later um, the culture is so fascinated with the manson crimes uh, you know, and when I, and that was the subject of the article I wrote for Esquire, and I would ask people about it, and basically they had no idea, and they would, they would come back at me and say, What do you think? And I would say, I don't know, what do you think? That's why I'm asking, you know, that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm questioning you about, and I think it's still a mystery, and, you know, the way I ended my article it was basically quoting from that, um, single that The Doors released called People Are Strange. I don't know that there's a, easy answer to that.
0: Yeah. I, and Asia, uh, you've poured through so much uh, of the material about this. And this really was, it's almost still kind of a standalone case. We totally understand, uh, or at least uh, we, we, we feel as though we know a lot about the individual male serial killer. We know a lot about a lot of kinds of killers. But the way in which these young women were made into proxy killers uh, by, by Manson, I don't know, what, what do you, after all the writing and thinking and reading you've done about this what do you make of the whole thing
1: I think um, if you are familiar at all with any of the the stories of the individual uh, cult members um, there's one who I think is a really quintessential example um, she's Manson's youngest known follower her name is Diane Lake and she joined the the cult when she was around 13 or 14 um, and her parents had moved out to California specifically to pursue the countercultural lifestyle and um, and they were very, very deeply embedded in it. And and nowadays, Diane Lake, who of course is in her sixties, um, she speaks out about this, and she basically blames the entire uh, her her getting wrapped up in the cult. She blames it very, uh, very much not just on Manson himself, but on the counterculture itself. Um, and she talks a lot about the ways in which the counterculture um, it seemed freeing on one level, but in terms of the way that that countercultural norms treated women um they were often subjugated and subject to sexual assault um and because of the the freewheeling lifestyle they were often more vulnerable than other people in their position and i think she makes really really good points i mean she was uh her parents basically handed over handed her over to this cult leader uh when she wasn't even 15 you know Mm -hmm. you think about that and you think about the ways in which the counterculture was seen as as a sort of not necessarily a subversion but an alternative to what we think of as the american dream and this mainstream american lifestyle uh, but in many ways i think that uh the gender norms were just as regressive and um and just as damaging for for women in these societies and in these circles as uh, as what we might think of as you know suburban. Uh, housewife drudgery, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that this gets talked enough about when we talk about Manson because I think people are so fixated on him, himself. Uh, but really, he was just really adept at manipulating uh, the women around him. Um, his oldest follower, or excuse me, his first follower, uh, Mary Brunner, she was a librarian. She moved from Minnesota, I think. Um, she was just very, very staid and upright. She she had everything going for her. Um, Again, she was a librarian. You can't get more mainstream America than a, a woman—a woman who's a librarian. Um, but she met Charles Manson, and soon she's letting him live in her house. She's letting him recruit other sex partners from her house and basically start his cult all from her house. And then she starts committing petty crimes for him, you know. And we so we see uh, that he wasn't just able to manipulate women and manipulate people around him, but I think the culture itself was was really. Uh, permissive and and sort of subtly encourage these women to give themselves to give themselves over to him
0: so uh peter biskin one of the um one of the movies that came out within the last year or so that tries to get at some of this question in a way that uh, very few cultural products i think have uh, is this movie charlie says um and and uh, this is a movie in which manson is played this time by matt smith a former doctor who and the guy who played the prince of wales in the queen uh so an unlikely candidate probably to be charlie manson but um uh, maybe Peter, you could begin by just explaining the evolution of the title. The title itself comes from an interesting phenomenon that was kind of discovered after the fact about some of these women.
3: Well, the, uh, I interviewed Guinevere um, T- uh, Turner, who wrote the script, and Mary Harron, who directed it, and um, the the title came from the fact that well, I, it's, I can't I can't start there because actually the background is. Is, is necessary to answer that mm-hmm. question, which is that um, three of the women who were convicted—Leslie uh, Van Houten, um, Sadie, Haw- uh, Susan Hawk, uh, Susan Watkins, we- um, Atkins, yeah, Susan, yeah—and um, uh, and Patricia Krenwinkel um, were expo- all went to prison together. There and they were in a special high security unit, and the uh, they. Uh, the warden, who was sort of, a, I guess, uh, a feminist and a radical of sorts, invited a woman named Carleen Faith, who was a graduate student who uh, specialized in criminology, to um, uh, expose them to feminist literature, and uh, you know all the you know the, the sort of um, classic texts those uh, well now they're considered classic texts of feminism. Uh, our bodies, ourselves, and books like that. But whatever they would read something, um, the women would say, Charlie says, you know, and they would, they would rebut everything and brush everything off by repeating, repeating, uh, Charlie says like puppets. And so the purpose of this, um, exercise in reading these texts was to prevent them, or awaken them from, uh you know, this coma that they were in in which you know, which caused them to say, Charlie says uh as a response to anything that contradicted um, his teachings. So that's where the title came from.
0: Right. So uh, we'll hear just a little clip from the film. Uh, this you, you couldn't maybe get a sense of the indoctrination. I mean, because the, the notion, I keep thinking of Ernest Becker's phrase, the spell cast by persons, you know, the, the notion that this would uh, prevail, it would persist uh, long after contact with Charles Manson. Uh, as Asia said, you know, there was a far, far subsequent a uh, presidential assassination attempt. I mean, the, the notion that that influence would persist so long is, I think, one of the great mysteries. Uh, here's uh, the Matt Smith uh, as Charles Manson. You'll hear Chase Crawford as Tex Watson and various actors uh, chanting as the family. Now we put the piggy
2: in the chair. Who's the piggy? Who's the piggy? Who's the piggy? Who's the
1: piggy? Who's the piggy? Who's the piggy? Who's the piggy? Who's the piggy?
2: Who's the piggy? 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 Who's the pig? Who's the piggy? Kill the piggy. Kill the piggy. Kill the piggy. Kill the piggy. Kill the Now imagine we just yanked this piggy out of his car. I want you to look at him and I want you to stare at him and I want you to scare to death. time up and we could scare the piggy into willingness all of his money. We could kill his family in front of him, but I need you to give this gift to me. Now, are you willing to die for me, Dex? Are you willing to let me kill you? Yeah Johnny. yeah, Johnny. you can kill me. You can kill me. I'm ready.
0: I'm ready. And so, uh, Asia Romano, um you kind of already made this point, but it's probably worth making again. I mean, one of the The bitter ironies and one of the paradoxes of this story is that, once again, Charles Manson comes out uh, to California, the frontier of late 60s societal change, a way in which a lot of the old hierarchies uh, are going to be overthrown, reversed. Opportunities are going to be opened up for the previously uh, excluded or downtrodden or marginalized. And he really sets up a system that's its own weird warped funhouse mirror version of the old hierarchical system.
1: Exactly. And I think uh, one thing that people associate uh, Charles Manson with is Spawn Ranch. And this is really something that I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, focuses on in a number of ways, uh, because the Spawn Movie Ranch obviously had been used uh, as a film location and a shooting locale for a number of Westerns and other movies. Um, during the sort of golden age of Westerns and Hollywood. Um, and at the time the Mansons moved into it, uh, that era had faded, but you still get the sense that Manson was trying desperately to be, he was so desperate to be a part of, of mainstream Hollywood glory, you know, that to him Spawn Ranch was some sort of connection to this, um, this thing that he wanted to access and couldn't get to, you know? And I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does a really, really interesting job of, almost paralleling charles manson and sort of the the wild west glory days you know this idea that you could go to hollywood or go to go out west to california and and set yourself up uh in the frontier and become this self-made person you could make your own community and do whatever you want but of course we know that's not how it worked
0: You know, I I guess I didn't quite understand uh, when I was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and and maybe I still don't understand it, but once I started reading uh, some of your stuff, uh, Asia, and listening to uh, You Must Remember Manson, that there's an actual person named Shorty Shea who was – Uh, A a stuntman who was out at that ranch and whose death, I don't know if it's ever been 100 percent resolved, but but there's a way in which what Tarantino is probably playing with a little bit is one of the real life, uh, not as well documented deaths uh, attributable to the family
1: exactly uh yes there were later victims who came after the tate and LaBianca murders uh shorty Shea was the last murder that manson ordered while he was still living at spawn ranch before they moved even further out into the desert um and if you can imagine that he basically would just order his followers to go to go kill people and um shorty basically uh was known to have conflicts with manson um he was found basically beaten and stabbed to death uh, right as the family was moving. And the general consensus is that the, the family did it on his orders. Right. Um, other, other murders who followed after that uh, included James and Lauren Willette. Um, they were basically uh, just a, a couple who had fallen in with, uh, with some members of the Manson family after they had scattered. Um, this was during the Manson trial. Um, and they had a child, and so they were traveling with these uh, Manson family members along with their child, um, and both of them were eventually killed, and uh, several members of the Manson family were convicted for their deaths. Um, so this sort of thing just continued on for years after after Manson was jailed, uh, sort of culminating with the assassination or the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford by Squeaky From.
0: Right. So and that's in 1975, six years after uh, the main events that we're talking about here. This uh, idea is still going. And I guess she's still, at least the last time anybody seems to have gotten her to talk about this, uh, has not really renounced Charles Manson uh, and his ideas. So, um, all right. So we need to take a break here. We'll be back with more Peter Biskin and uh, Asia Romano. Uh, We'll go out of this segment with a song, part of a song from Stephen Sondheim's Assassins.
2: That's what you want me to do. I am unworthy of your
0: love. Charlie Darling. I have done nothing for you. I've got to quickly say that uh, today's show about Charles Manson was immaculately and extensively uh, produced by Jonathan McPants. Uh, we've got Wolfie, Guy and Wolf on the board uh, making the show sound good and making sure we get to all these things. And so speaking, uh, before I bring back Peter and Asia, uh, both speaking of Jonathan McPants, uh, he uh, happened to notice on Twitter that a guy that we'd had on the show in the in the past, uh, Nick Desemlian, uh, features editor for Empire Magazine and the author of Wild and Crazy Guys, uh, that he had seen a pre-release Cut of Once Upon a Time in America, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, sorry, that had a, a, a real Charles Manson scene in it. Uh, and so uh, he got a hold uh, of Nick uh, because we should say, if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I won't do any spoilers, I promise, but Charles Manson is not particularly visible in this movie. Uh, aspects of, of Manson's role as puppet master are very, very prominent in, in the movie. But you see only flashes uh, uh, of Manson and not in any way that drives the, the direct plot. Uh, but apparently there was more. And so uh, here's Nick uh talking about what he saw.
2: I got to fly out to Los Angeles for Empire Magazine, for the cover story. And I went to the place where they were editing the film. It was this house in Hollywood. And I got to watch 40 minutes of the film with Tarantino sitting just behind me, which was surreal. It was pretty much the first 40 minutes of the film, give or take. But um, Manson had a scene in that cut, which was still in the film at that point. It was about a week before Cannes. He took it out over that week. So the scene that I saw is really, it's not a new scene, it's an extension of the scene that is in the film where Manson goes up to um, the Tate property and Cliff, played by Brad Pitt, is up on the roof of the house next door and Manson is heading back to his vehicle and he's about to get in it when he looks up and he and Cliff lock eyes. And Manson in this deleted scene does these karate moves, these kind of crazy moves and he does some like wild kind of scatting and then he yells um, at Cliff, you Jack. And then Brad Pitt, uh, Cliff kind of reels backwards a little bit and then mutters to himself, what the f- was that? And so that that was the scene, that was the moment.
0: You know, so uh, let me once again re-welcome our guest, uh, Asia Romano, internet culture reporter for Vox. who's done a tremendous amount of really great writing for Vox and uh, I think other publications as well about the Manson family murders uh, and Manson himself. Peter Biskin, the author most recently of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for uh, Extremism. He wrote a piece called How the Manson Family Murders Turned into 50 Years of Pop Culture, a pop culture fodder for Esquire. So Peter, you know, Listening to that clip and just thinking about so many of the ways in which Manson drifts out into the culture over fifty years time, you know, I, I'm I think I'm glad that that clip didn't make it to the movie because there's a way in which Manson teeters on and sometimes spills over almost into camp, right? I mean, you've even write about really this kind of kitschy Manson swag, you know, that that people people sell as if this were entirely a fictional story.
3: Well, it's true. I mean, well, one part of the answer to that question is there is a whole industry in, um, you know, Manson memorabilia. You know, there's a museum in Las Vegas that features um, the bone fragments and the ashes from his, uh, I guess he was um, cremated. Uh, I mean, I know he was cremated. Uh, they sell of uh, X-ray of his uh, spinal cord for eighty-five hundred dollars. His sandals go for five thousand dollars, and a lock—a lock on his hair of his hair—goes for twenty-five hundred dollars. So all that stuff is is uh, f- uh, for sale at various websites. And there's there's plenty. There are T-shirts on Amazon, and one of the T-shirts reads, um, "Let's make murder uh, great again." Stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think, you know, you started at the beginning by saying something like, uh, I think if I misinterpreted you, that uh, the way he is sort of, uh, threaded through popular culture sort of trivializes him in a in, in certain way, and trivializes the murders. And in certain ways, that's true, I think, as all these, um, memorabilia, uh, indicate. But, um, you know, I think it's a mistake, to focus on Manson exclusively, you know, sort of myopically, because just to, um, dissent for a second, um, Asia said something earlier about, about blaming it on the counterculture. Uh, I mean, if you think about the fact that the Vietnam War was going on at the same time, uh, you know, and, uh, American, you know, American, uh, soldiers, male, were slaughtering people in Vietnam. Uh and then you also think about all the women or young girls in the counterculture who didn't become Manson survivors, um uh, Manson followers. Uh I mean it's true that the gender roles in the counterculture were just as bad as they were in the um uh, dominant culture, but I think I, I you know, I don't think that counterculture was uh around long enough to deal with um you know, to grow up in a sense. Uh so, but I just feel it's a, it's a little bit—it's um, a little bit skewed to uh, blame the counterculture for, for Manson. There are lots of other uh, explanations for it, but that doesn't answer your question. No, but, no. But and-
0: I, I would agree with everything that you just said. and But I would also say that when mainstream culture got a hold of Manson, they kind of did water him down into, he's kind of the mass murderer that you can joke about. So in the movie Punchline, Sally Field plays this struggling stand-up comedian who really wants for material. And, and she finally scores with the audience by telling a Charles Manson joke, a sort of babysitter Charles Manson joke. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried, used to do a joke where he would say, you know, I was talking to Charles Manson the other day and he said to me, Gilbert, am I crazy or is it hot in here? Uh, You know, that you couldn't probably get away with the same joke about Ted Bundy. It would just seem a lot darker uh, and more grim. And and Asia, one thing I wanted to ask you about or just talk to you about a little bit before we run out of time, because it's one of the other utterly strange things about this is that John Waters, the director who really has made, you know, a name for himself with a nothing is out of bounds investigation of things that are in bad taste, has apparently over the years developed a very, very serious attitude uh, towards the Manson family, and specifically uh, Leslie Van Houten, or Van Houten. I've actually heard it said uh, both ways. Uh, so, I mean, here's this guy who's kind of famous for saying nothing is off limits, but he has really kind of made a campaign pain uh, out of trying to rehabilitate this now 70-year-old woman.
1: I think a lot of people who look at the Manson girls as they were called then and still now um, feel a lot of sympathy for what they went through at the time. Uh, they look at them as people who were uh, in many ways victims of Manson himself, uh, themselves, even though they were obviously the ones com- committing these horrible murders. They also were manipulated. They were beaten down and in the way that cult leaders know how to manipulate and wear down their followers into submission. Right. Um and of course, they've all had extremely long uh, prison sentences. Um, Susan Atkins and Patricia uh, Krenwinkel, I think, are were and are the longest-serving women in California. Um, so I think that draws sympathy from people. And I think too, uh, as of course, as time goes on, we we want to rewrite culture nar- cultural narratives to to be more in line with current ways of of thinking, right? So we have we've done a lot to rewrite to sort of, or at least reframe and reconsider the narratives of these women, um, much in the same way that I think we've also been sort of rewriting the, or at least reframing the narrative around Ted Bundy, uh, around Ted Bundy to be like, he's not necessarily this this completely, um, extraordinarily charming sociopath who just blindsided everyone who came into contact with him. You know, he really was a manipulative, misogynistic predator, like, and that's maybe the framework that we need to have. And so I think people are, as we look at Charles Manson and we say, well, he really wasn't this, this completely blinding, uh, phenomenally powered uh, cult leader who could just get you to do anything on a whim. There were all these other cultural factors involved. We also have to reassess the women who were under his spell.
0: Um, we've only got a minute left, so Peter Biskin, this will be a challenge to you. But I, one of the things that you quote is uh, Joan Didion from her famous essay, basically saying, you know, this is when the '60s ended for a lot of people. Was in August of 1969. Although I sort of feel like if that's true, then the '60s were never really happening at all. I don't know. You get 60 seconds to riff on that.
3: Well, that, well, that you know that quote always. It's not the quote itself that irritated me, but the way it's been used. I mean, the '60s had essentially two parts. One was the hippie movement, the so, you know, the Summer of Love, and the other was the anti-war movement. And the anti-war movement survived just fine after Manson. It had, you know, um, it went, you know, it went, it 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 uh, it thrived, and it was um, instrumental in ending, I think, in ending the Vietnam War. And that happened, uh... you know, regardless of what Manson did. It's true that. Um, the summer of love the, the sort of um you know uh the the, the optimism of the early hippies but I, you know a lot of people never believed in that to begin with i mean these were like um you know 13 year old kids who didn't know anything <laughs> and uh, but it's true that it frightened people in la especially you know who used to leave their doors open and used to uh uh, pick up hitchhikers and that, whole, that all that changed but it had nothing to do with the larger anti-war movement So it which is, I associate with the 60s so. That's a,
0: that is a great point but it is where we are going to have to end we are out of time thank you to Peter Biskin uh, who wrote about this for Esquire uh, and to Asia Romano who wrote about this for Vox I direct you to read both of their works we will link to all of it on our webpage thanks again to Jonathan McNichol for a great producing effort